Hebrews chapter 9, still hearing the rustling of pages, starting, just reading one verse, verse 27, says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. I'm preaching this morning, uh, teaching and preaching this morning about crossing the line. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence that is here. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the promises that it contains. We pray, Lord, that we would be both encouraged and strengthened and challenged by it today. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Bless the Lord. Without wanting to be too uh, morbid this morning, across the city of Perth this weekend, probably in churches and chapels and funeral homes and maybe a range of other places, there have been people gathered pay their respects to a loved one whose life has come to an end. Somebody who was maybe a family member, a friend or a colleague and uh, our lives come to an end physically for a wide variety of reasons. Sometimes we live to very old ages and our bodies basically wear out. Sometimes it's disease, sometimes there are, there's trauma such as accidents in vehicles or, or violent crime and and sadly, much more, more and more common in the world in which we live, people die by the deliberate act of their own hand, unable to convince that they are unable to, to face another day. And whatever, whatever the cause is, whether somebody has lived a long and full life, as we would describe it, or somebody has been tragically cut off in their prime, the fact remains that life has gone out of the body and those that are left behind who have gathered together are uh, uh, at least for a moment forced to face their own mortality. And as the scripture that we just read says, it is appointed unto men once to die. Men. And uh, people's minds and conversations often turn to their own mortality at least on the day of a funeral or a day when people stop to remember the passing of a loved one. But there's just something about human nature that when that day's done, we just seem to go on with our lives as, as if it was just another thing on the calendar. And uh, you may remember a little while back we, we talked about grief not so long ago. And, you know, at, at, at the times of a passing of a loved one, we try to comfort one another. Amen? We, we try to, we, we use expressions and thoughts of heaven and peace and rest and Sometimes, and I don't mean to be facetious, but sometimes the deceased may have been a person of very few morals, spent their life pursuing wickedness and sin, and yet because it is somebody else's child or family member, we often try to find something positive and and reassuring to say to those who have suffered the loss. And I, I believe very sincerely that we should, in whatever way we can, attempt to bring comfort to the grieving. I don't think that we are responsible to declare somebody's state, but we need to have compassion. But the challenge that we face, and this is maybe where I'm wanting to get to, if that started a little bit like a funeral sermon, the challenge for the church today is that we preach a Bible-based message of salvation that proclaims the need for repentance. It proclaims the need for change, the the need for obedience to God's word if you are going to be saved. That gospel message by its very nature declares that there will be some who are saved and some who are not. 
That's simply the nature of the gospel. When, when somebody is presented with a message that, that there is a way to be saved, then obviously the, the, the other option is that we remain unsaved. Amen. And, you know, the scripture, a couple of scriptures as examples, Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you nay, but except you repent. He was talking about some tragedies that happened. He was basically saying, don't think that those things happened to those people because they were particularly wicked. He said, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Everybody. John 3, 15, Jesus said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And again, these scriptures present options. They don't present automatic outcomes for everybody. And so when you preach the need for salvation, the human mind very quickly comes to understand that if we need to be born again, then something must happen to those who are not born again. Right? That, that's a fairly rational outcome. And we grasp that, I guess to put it simply, there are some who are, those that are saved that are kind of on one side and those who aren't saved that are on the other. And in the simplicity of our minds, it's almost as if there's a line drawn somewhere in the sand. And there's the saved on one side of the line and the unsaved on the other side. I don't think it's quite that simple. But that's how our minds work. Jesus said in Matthew 25 and 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That part's okay. But a few verses later, in verse 41 of the same chapter, he presents the other option, which is, then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, that's challenging. Amen? The, the, the confronting, very uncomfortable nature of this realization of what the Word of God is saying can cause us to look for reasons why in certain circumstances this might be unjust in our assessment. Or, or it's not necessarily fair according to the way that we measure what fair is. Because it's confronting, amen? The thought of an eternity with only two options is confronting. And it's very unpalatable, um, very unappealing to the world in which we live. We begin to say, people want to say, well, what about these people over here? Or what about this person? Surely, surely God wouldn't let this good person go to hell. Surely he wouldn't do that. We try to reconcile what the Word of God says with our own minds so that it's not as confronting for us. But God's Word is confronting. Sadly, it is. And, you know, there's questions that people ask. You know, the, the classic question, I've, I've actually been asked this literally. This is not just a cliche. And you begin to talk to somebody about their need to be baptized and why that's very important according to the Word of the Lord. And people will say, well, what happens to somebody if they're in the desert and they repent of their sins, and there's no water for them to get baptized, and somehow they die before they find water. People are looking for a loophole. They're looking for a reason so that they can dilute down the absolute nature 
of the outcomes of the gospel. I say, what about the over one billion people in China or the over one billion people in India? We always look for huge extreme examples on the other side of the world. There's just something, you know, in Australia we can't really do that because the world has come here. So we can't really say that. We try to find these extreme examples so that we can find a loophole And the purpose, sadly, the purpose is not our concern or compassion for the more than one billion souls in those countries. It's looking for a way to justify our lack of response to the gospel. That's really what it boils down to. Very few of us are actually going to travel to a remote country and try to preach the gospel to them. We're actually concerned about, well, if I can find a loophole, then I don't have to respond in the way that God's word is challenging me to respond. And we we use these faraway examples, but we should... In all honesty, what about the people across the street? You know, if we're worried about souls, why are we thinking of people on the other side of the planet? What about the people in our own suburb? The responsibility of the church is not to decide who will or won't be saved. That's not our job. Our job, our responsibility, our call, our mission is to preach what the Bible says is necessary to be ready for heaven. That's the church's responsibility. We don't have the liberty, we don't have the poetic license to dilute, to present options, to say, well, yes, I recognize that might be difficult for you, so here's our other alternative package. We don't have those options. We have the very sobering responsibility to preach the gospel message of salvation and let the outcomes be in the hands of God. You know, the scripture has a fair bit to say about judgment. And that's another one that people love to talk about. When you talk to them about the need to be saved, they're very quick to say, aren't you supposed to not judge me? Isn't that what the Bible says? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. It almost, it's written by Dr. Seuss, that verse, I think. And why beholdest thou the mote or the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but considers not the beam or the plank of wood that is in thine own eye? How wilt thou say to thy brother, let me get that speck out of your eye when you've got a dirty great plank of timber hanging out of your eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam or the plank from thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat of thy brother's eye. The instruction is not to do that so you can help your brother. The instruction is pay attention to your own issues. That's what the instruction's about. Romans 14 and 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it naught, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So the scripture does tell us here, uh, teach us about judgment, but the scripture also does teach us to judge some things. It teaches us to judge behaviors. Now, the book of Proverbs says in verse tw- chapter 22 and verse 24, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. So the instruction is, don't spend time with those people because of the influence they will have on you. But don't you have to judge them before you decide if they're an angry person? Or if you should spend time with them or not? So when it's talking about judgment in the Word of God, what it's telling us is that we are not the judge of people's souls. We are not to determine where they will spend eternity. We are to determine whether or not we should spend time with somebody or where we should go and things we should participate in. But it is the Lord who will judge, not us. It's the Lord who will judge, not us. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I don't judge anybody. As gently as I can, that's really not honest. 
If I ask you, do you think Adolf Hitler's going to be in heaven? You probably have an opinion about that. Or anybody else who's committed atrocities and been involved in terrible crimes or the worst things that you think are the worst things, you know. We have an opinion about where they're going to end up. So it's interesting when we say we don't judge anybody. See, we, we live in a world where it's, this is not even a new thing. This is an old thing now. It's already being replaced where there's this concept of what's called moral relativism or where there is no such thing as there's no absolute right, no absolute wrong. Everything's relative. It's kind of the philosophy that has produced this idea that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, which kind of is not the definition of the word truth in the first place. But it's this idea that if I'm allowed to have my own truth, then that means that whatever I am comfortable with is right, which is nice because it makes you feel good. But it's wrong, which is a problem. It's not biblical. Jesus said there were sheep and there were goats. That's how he was. Amen. We, you see, we all have opinions, if we're honest, about who will be saved and who won't be. Your opinion and my opinion, they're not worth a whole lot. Because we all like to think we can draw the line, but God has the authority to decide where the line is drawn. Because only his opinion counts. This is really what it boils down to in John chapter 12 and verse 48. It says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That's the key. We're going to be judged by the word of God. That's why it's the church's responsibility to preach the word of God as it is. Not compromised, not added to, not diluted, but to preach what it says because that's what matters. Amen. And while we are not permitted to be judge and jury of others, we can certainly know what God thinks about the things that we do. Amen. We can, and we need to look at ourselves. There, there is a danger, and some of these examples I've already mentioned, but there's, there's a danger in letting our emotions and our own rational thinking blur what the Word of God says. There is this natural human tendency to treat the Word of God as something that is pliable and can become conformable to a place that this fits my thinking very nicely. When that's not what we're instructed to do. Because the way the Lord sees situations is not the same as the way we see them. And it is dangerously foolish to try and conform His Word or to bring it into alignment with some code of conduct that suits our conscience and our feelings. But we do it. Even believers do it. Because there are situations that we don't like what we think is the outcome and so therefore we look for a different way to make ourselves feel better. We go back to the start of our message talking about when we lose loved, one, when we lose loved ones. Because we love those that we have lost, it's hard for us to accept sometimes that they may not have been saved. Let's be honest. Somebody we care about passes from this life and we know they didn't believe in the Lord. If you're a believer there's a conclusion your mind goes to, amen? And that's hard. That, that, that's difficult. That, that's painful. And so we've got to be careful that we don't try to comfort ourselves by looking for some creative way that they may have just managed to cross the line successfully. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
This is something we have to understand because sometimes we get this mindset that, that God is the judge and that he is uh, frowning on all of humanity, looking for ways to punish humanity. But if there is anybody that wants to see you saved, it's him. If there's anybody that desperately wants to see you take the advantage of his grace, it's Jesus. And he loves our loved ones that we care about more than we do. He has more compassion, more mercy, more grace than we do. So we've got to lose this mindset that, that God doesn't care. God cares. God cares. Jesus is looking to include, not to exclude. Jesus is always looking to include people in his family, in his church, in his body. It is not his desire for people to miss out. In fact, he went to such an extreme to provide the opportunity for us to be saved. You read Philippians chapter 2, it always affects me when I read that, of how it talks of how he made himself of no reputation, took on him the form of a servant, submitted himself unto death, even the death of the cross. He, he, he went about as low as he possibly could. He suffered what was from a purely physical perspective, an incredibly painful death. But piled on top of the physical suffering was the guilt and the shame that was laid upon him for our sins. He went to the ultimate extreme to provide an opportunity. So we've got to shake this thinking that some people have that God is reluctant to help anybody. That's not the God the Bible teaches me about. But because he went to such an extreme measure... It demonstrates two things that we need to keep in balance. The first is this, how much he loves us. If he was willing to go that far, how much does he love us? But the balance of that statement is how serious our need for salvation was. The extreme measures that he went to was the ultimate demonstration of love, but it was also a statement of we were in a bad situation. This is not just a quick fix, just a makeover. We needed to be saved from condemnation. The sin issue must be addressed. The sin issue must be... That is the gospel message. That for God so loved the world that he gave. That if we would believe in him, if we would be saved from our sins, we would escape an eternity of torment. It's not a popular... You know, there are, there are churches today that don't believe in a literal place of suffering that don't believe in a place where souls go for eternity that have rejected the Lord. Why is that? Because it has been unpalatable long enough that they have decided to find a way to make it less confronting. And, it's, and it sounds great. And it, it appeals to people's, you know, if they, they find some weird twisted way of interpreting the Scripture and looking at it from a particular angle, so oh, that's, that's not actually a real concept, then they can just feel more comfortable. But the reality is that's not what the Scripture says. And again, we, it is not our job to preach condemnation. It is our job to preach hope. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel be? What does that mean? Does that mean that every, every Sunday morning, you know, we get the leaders together and we stand at the door of the church and we measure everybody as they come in, 
judgment beginning at the house of God. Sorry, you can't come in. You don't measure up. Get out of here. You're a filthy heathen. No, no. What it means is we must, as the church, examine what we believe and teach. We must constantly be saying, this is what the Word of God says. This is what the Word of God says. Here is the line in the sand. It is God's Word. It is God's truth. It is the gospel message. Amen. Amen. You know, as I said before, there there is no literal line in the sand. There is no mark on the floor that you cross over. But does that mean that we cannot know if we're saved? Because we're not, you know, no, absolutely not. The Apostle Paul was not unsure. Second Timothy chapter 4, these famous words in verse 6, he said, For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He didn't say, well, I think I did, or I gave it a good shot, or as far as I'm aware, he said, I've done what God told me to do. He said, henceforth, because of this, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. Paul said, I'm ready. He knew his death was coming, but he said, I'm ready to meet the Lord. You need to have that same confidence. I mean, not, not in a, a, a light-hearted, arrogant kind of way, but you need to have enough confidence in the Word of God and in His grace that you can say, Lord, I'm doing my best to be faithful and I believe I'm ready to meet you. Sister Sham taught us about grace so wonderfully a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to that message on the podcast. There is, the grace of God is enough that we should be able to say, Lord, I believe I'm ready. Amen. And we know today that if we're going... To, be, to cross that line on the winning side, we've got to live for him now, in this life. If we're going to live, we've got to be born. If we're going to live for Jesus, we've got to be born again. John chapter 3, and I know some of this is fundamental to us, but this is what the Lord has laid on my heart to minister today. John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, This is the beginning. Birth is the beginning. It's the starting point. You can't get round that. You can't live without being born. Amen? Just, nat- like, just as it is naturally, it is spiritually. You've got to be born. It comes back again to whether or not we receive the Word of God. Amen. This, you must be born of water and spirit. That's what Jesus... And, and again, people look at that, well, that, you know, this and that. This is an apostolic Pentecostal church. What that means is we do everything we can to preach and teach what the apostles preached and taught and have the experience that they had in the book of Acts. Amen. We believe that the Word of God promises that you can still receive the Holy Ghost today. And we've had some people receive the Holy Ghost just recently, which is fantastic. Amen. But some have tried to suggest, well, it's not for the church anymore. It served its purpose. It was, a, it was a, a launch. You know, it gave the church a kick back there in the first century. It gave them a bit of a launch. And, and they look for any number of ways to avoid what the Word really says. But the problem is people are still being filled with the Holy Ghost today, speaking in other tongues. So then they have to say, well, what do we do with that? If we, 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 we think it was for back then, but it's still happening now. So how do we handle that? Well, you know, 
it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an optional blessing. It doesn't have to happen, but if it happens, that's great. But that's not what the Word of God says, because this is the danger of trying to conform the Word of God to tradition, to satisfy our own thinking. If it's an optional blessing, then why did Jesus say you must be born again of the water and the Spirit? You see, when the Word of God challenges our thinking or it confronts our traditions, we're faced with a choice. The first option is, do I try to bend the Word of God to make it conform to where I'm already comfortable? Or do I bend myself and my thinking to be in alignment with the Word of God? That is the choice that everybody faces. And many of you here can testify this morning of how when you first heard this gospel message of needing to be born again of water and spirit, you had faith. You may have even had a religious experience and all of a sudden the Word of God is challenging something that you trusted. And what you naturally, that's, that's destabilizing, that you feel threatened when that's challenged. And that's okay. But then there is this choice, what do I do with this challenge? Do I bend it or do I let it bend me? That's what we have to answer. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 46, it says, And he said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ, or it was necessary, it was suitable, it was required for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins, or forgiveness of sins, should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, this is all Jesus speaking, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So we're at the very end of the Gospels. This is the, the closing verses of the, of the Gospel of Luke. Je and he's reminding us at this stage, Jesus has died and he's risen again. Then what's supposed to happen next? Jesus is giving them his instructions. He says, beginning at Jerusalem, you are to preach in my name the message of repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins. That's your instruction. And you're to wait in Jerusalem for a promise that's coming from God. That's what it just said in what we read in Luke chapter 24. And so Jesus ascends into heaven. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. And they go back to Jerusalem just like they were instructed. It's amazing what happens when we do what God says. Amen. Even just going back to Jerusalem. Amen. They went back to Jerusalem like they were told. They find an upper room and they begin to have a prayer meeting. Now at some point the prayer meeting stops because they, in the midst of that process they, have a, they go through a, a, a system, if you like, where they decide who's going to take Judas's place. You read that in Acts chapter 1. They, they, they get a replacement on board for Judas and then the prayer meeting keeps going. This prayer meeting goes on for a number of days. And then we hit Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they're all with one accord in one place. They were physically in the same place, but they're also united in purpose and reason for being there. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with that optional blessing, the Holy Ghost. No, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the Spirit of God empowered them to do so. 
What were they told by Jesus to wait for? The promise. Right? The promise. Amen. You can, you can answer that question audibly. Let's me know you're awake. That's okay. But the noise of this promise being received caused a crowd together and the uniqueness. You know, when you come into a Pentecostal church for the first time, it can be challenging and confronting. But a lot of people have some vague ideas of Pentecostal churches, thanks to the internet. But this is the first time. This is the first apostolic, tongue-talking, Holy Ghost service that ever happened. And so you can understand why the people in the street were like, whoa, what in the world is going on there? You imagine you're walking down the street where you live and you walk past somebody's house. Now, I don't know if you can get 120 people in somebody's house, but there's a crowd, there's a packed house, and everybody in that house is speaking loudly in a foreign language. Would you stop? I'd at least pause for a moment and go, what in the world is going on in there? Well, this is happening in Jerusalem. They're all speaking in other tongues, and the crowd gathers around, and they, what in the world is all of this going on? And so the Bible says that the apostles stood up together. They were still in one accord, still in one place, in one accord. And Peter said to the crowd, no, 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 they're not drunk. That's what we would assume in Australia, most definitely. But Peter said, no, no, these are not drunk like you think they are. He said, but this is that which was prophesied about way back in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel. To put it simply, this is the promise of the Father that we were told to wait for. That's why we're here. Amen. And then Jesus goes on to preach to them about who Jesus really is and how they had played a part in his crucifixion. Again, confronting, right? Jesus, whom you crucified. That's pretty confronting. But when they heard this, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, and I know for some of you, this I've been hearing this since I was seven years old, but I still love it. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, their conscience was bothered, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, there must be a way where we can understand this that makes us feel good. No, no, they said, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for this promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So most of you probably know, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. So same writer, one author, the Lord, but same writer. Luke wrote both. And sometimes the theologians that are much smarter than I kind of think that Luke-Acts should almost be combined into one book, but they can debate that somewhere else. But can you see the connection between what we read in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 2? In both passages, we have repentance, a turning away from sin. We have the remission or the forgiveness of sins. We have the name of Jesus and we have a promise in both of those passages of Scripture. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3? Except a man be born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, throughout when you read Scripture, uh, I was going to say the right way, let's call it the right way, things will always connect. If it's all broken pieces, there's something wrong with the way we're reading it and putting the puzzle together. Pieces will always connect. And if we want to cross the line on the winning side, whether that's the end of this life physically or when the Lord returns, we must be born of water and spirit. 
That's what it says. Amen. Now, just in case we think that Acts chapter 2, if you read on from where we read in verse 39, there's a whole bunch of people got baptized. Okay? When you read on in the book of Acts, and these verses should hopefully all be on that one slide together just to make it easy, these are other examples in the book of Acts of people getting baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Philip's in Samaria. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 10, Peter is with Cornelius, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. This is the same Peter who said what he said in Acts chapter 2. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Acts chapter 19 and verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, all through the book of Acts, there is the consistent testimony of people being baptized in the name of Jesus so their sins could be washed away, could be remitted, could be forgiven. Amen. That is the consistent example. And whether we like this concept or not, we all need to have our sins washed away. Every single one of us have got sin and it needs to be washed away. Now, what usually happens when I begin to talk to somebody about being baptized in the name of Jesus like these scriptures have just shown us is that particularly if they've been baptized before but not in Jesus' name, they will ask me about this verse, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Because often many people who have some sort of faith experience, and please let me remind you as I say often from this pulpit, never ever disregard somebody's journey. Never ever, God can lead people from the strangest starting positions to his truth if they're hungry. Amen. Yesterday in our men's meeting, there was a Seventh-day Adventist leader who was here with us. Amen. If we're hungry, God can lead us. Not everybody has a simple faith journey. Some of us have been through a few train stations along the way. Amen. So you never, ever despise somebody's journey. But often when I talk to people, they have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And when they see these scriptures, what does it do? It confronts them. They say, well, hang on a sec. What is this about? And now, if we believe that all Scripture comes from God, which I hope that we do, because the Bible says that it does, then all of these verses must fit together. And in Matthew 28 and 19, there is only one name, but there are three titles. And that's the thing we have to understand. Very simply, John chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name. Amen and you receive me not. John chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. So I could go off on a different tangent for another hour to explain that, but just in those two examples, we see the connection of the name of Jesus with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Just in those couple of verses. It is all in the name of Jesus. And if people are willing to look at the Scripture, they will see that the name of Jesus is emphasized. Throughout the New Testament, we are told to pray for the sick in Jesus' name. We are told to cast out devils in Jesus' name. Whatever we do in word or deed is supposed to be done in Jesus' name. We are told that every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth is going to bow down before the name of Jesus. This is repeated again and again and again. So when we read this verse about the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
we have to ask the question, what does the rest of the Bible teach us that this name is? It's the name of Jesus. Amen. So getting back to when I'm talking to somebody about baptism, if they have been previously baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and then they see all these scriptures, we come back to the question we asked earlier. Do I try to bend the Word of God to make it conform to a comfortable place of tradition where I am already, already positioned? Or do I recognize that to be obedient to the Word of God and it all put together, I have to bend myself and do what the Word of God says and be baptized in Jesus' name? That's really the choice we have to make. Do we take one verse that has been taken by itself and ignored with the rest? Or do we take them all together and recognize that there is no other name, the Bible says, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? It's a choice. It's a choice. Yes, the Word of God confronts. It does. You know, when the Pharisees came out to John the Baptist in the River Jordan Everybody was getting baptized. It seemed like the cool thing to do at the time. They all came out and he told them to go away. He said, you need to demonstrate that you've got genuine repentance. So don't just come out here for some religious ceremony because everybody else is doing it. You need to repent. How do you think they felt being told they needed to repent? How do you think they felt when Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil? Confronting, right? But the Word of God confronts because there is a need that has to be confronted. That need is that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is a sin issue that has got to be addressed before we cross the line. Before this life comes to an end, we need to know what our destiny is. We need to know if we're hung up on tradition or if we're actually reading what the Word of God says. When the end of our life comes, we need to have the same confidence that the Apostle Paul had. Amen. Is it my opinion that matters? Is it your opinion that matters? No. Everybody's got opinions. But we go back to John chapter 12 and verse 48, where Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. That's the word of God. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. We need to know what this book says, brothers and sisters. We need to be able to stand upon this book because it is appointed unto man once to die. Appointed unto man once to die. Then comes the judgment. Amen. This is I'm not trying to create fear, but I want us to understand what the Word of God says, not just religious tradition. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I finished a course. I've kept the faith. He did what the Word of God said. You want to talk about somebody who was confronted by his religious tradition? Read the story of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. He was a man that was convinced he believed in God. He was 100% convinced that what he believed was truth. But because his heart wanted to please God, Jesus got a hold of him on the Damascus Road and basically confronted everything that he believed. But he was willing to listen. That's what it comes down to. And then Paul said, we believe that not long after he wrote Second Timothy that they executed him, 
We don't have all the exact times and details, but that is what is the general assumption. He could pretty well see the finish line. It was in sight. He knew it was coming. We, you and I don't know today, but he knew where it was coming, but he said, I have kept the faith. Stand with me if you would this morning.